continuing our uh, series on Advent today. And so turn with me to John 1. We'll park again in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We've actually already heard one reading, which was further than where we'll go today, uh, concerning primarily John the Baptist and his identity uh, and his mission at the same time. And so, as we've said before here in John, he does not start his gospel the same way the other gospel writers do. Uh, they'll all start off their gospel differently. Um, he starts off, ex- I mean, really with an explosion. In the beginning was the Word. And, you know, we, we've unpacked some of these things that, ha- that John is dealing with here. And so today I want to actually look again at these verses that have been so powerful and will always continue to hold their power as long as we are, have ears to hear. So let's ask the Lord this morning as we read His Word to give us those ears to hear what He has to say to us. Notice here, starting in John verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Let us pray. Lord, thank You for Your holy Word. Holy Spirit, would You apply these sacred words to our hearts this morning, and would You make us holy and sacred before You in this world for the sake of Your name, we pray. Amen. You know, Advent is this great time of the year. It's, you know, lots of colors, uh, greenery in the midst of you know, very boring grass. I mean, our grass is all the same color. Um, You know, in my neighborhood where there used to be, oh, he's got a great lawn. Oh, he's got a really, you know, not so great lawn. Uh, Now everything looks the same. 
Uh, it looks like you got a fantastic lawn, uh, even if you are not regularly a mower. Um, and so, you know, we have this contrast between the green of the wreaths and the lights and the deadness of winter. You know, in the midst of, of uh, the trees losing their color uh, and everything seeming to be grayed outside, we have lights, we have, you know, parties, we have foods, we have candies that are being cooked, we have family time, we have vacationing different areas possibly even during, during uh, this season. And, and, and so it's really kind of a beautiful, smelly, in a good way, uh, you know, joyous, festive time. And at the same time, we look ahead down the road and we see the cross. So at the same time, we have joy and we look ahead and see suffering. And we don't always know what to do with that. Uh, this is Jesus' mission. He came to die. What a mission. You know, you would think that if God came to visit, uh, He would come to set up His rulership, at least politically. I mean, that would be the, really the first thing you would want to see happen, which is exactly what the Jews expected to happen. And that did not happen. His kingdom, He tells them, is not of this world. And so, He is the suffering servant. He's what Isaiah saw that the Jews themselves could not see. That the Gentiles did not know about. And so, you know, during Advent, we look down the road a little ways and we see Lent. I mean, you know, it's just right around the corner. As soon as spring gets here, we start fasting. We start denying ourselves of certain things in preparation for Easter. And, you know, at the very beginning, I can't help but think that Mary knows some of this. You know, I don't know the exact relationship and what all she knew or she didn't know, but when you remember they go to the temple and Simeon holds that little baby in his arms... I mean, you know, I can't help but look at Ty, my own child. I was holding him you know, this morning thinking about this same thing. And that is, Jesus went at eight days old. I mean, He was just... He, and again, He had no... You know, He didn't choose to go to church, you understand. He was brought there by His parents. Which is, by the way, a duty of parents is to teach their children the ways of God. And so here He is brought to the temple and Simeon, this old fellow who actually asked the Lord to let him see his salvation before he died, is able to hold baby Jesus. I mean, just a baby. He can't even talk, you understand. He doesn't know the words in his brain, and yet in his divine nature, he knows everything. I mean, what a, what a thought that is. And he holds him up, and he says, many will rise and fall on this guy here. And he makes a prophecy there. And it sounds eerily like the cross. Because he tells Mary particularly, he says, a sword will pierce your heart. And as he's holding this baby, this is the baby that will die for us. You know, sacrifice is across the board one of the um, you know, mainstays of religion of any religion in the world. So you study any religion, they're going to have sacrifice in some way as a part of their religion. 
And so you say to yourself, well, why would that be a commonality among the world's religions? Because the one true religion, who is Jesus Himself, was the sacrifice and must have been the sacrifice for our sins. Someone has to pay, as we know, for what we've done. It doesn't just go unnoticed. It isn't forgotten about. Injustice is a real thing. When you break the law, that gets noticed. It gets captured. And ultimately, we are captured and we are imprisoned by our own sin. And so He must deliver. One must come that is the sacrifice for all. And this, of course, is Jesus. And so... You know, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and yet then we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, which is a Christmas song that we often uh, will, will sing. Born that man no more may die. But how is that? It's through his own death. So he takes the one thing that maybe troubles us the most, the one thing that brings to nothing all that we build in life. You know, we... we I've always thought this is the saddest thing about someone's death. You know, you school them. They have to go to school all these years and they learn all these things and they read all these books and they read all these articles and you know they, they train and do all this stuff and, and in, in their 20s they're in a car accident and they die. And all that's lost, isn't it? I mean, it's just boom. All that hard work, all the papers they pushed out, all the you know books they've ever read, classes they've ever seen, all of it's just gone. I mean, you had, you had this entire world that was constructed, trained, built, invested in, just simply lost in an accident. You know, somebody doesn't, doesn't put on a blinker. Somebody moves into the wrong lane at the wrong time. Uh, someone falls asleep at the wheel. And just that quick, it's all snuffed out. And it's just such a tragedy. You, you think there's a whole world that's lost in that person. And so death is the great enemy, the Scripture says, to all of us. It brings to naught everything that we can build in this life. And yet, God in Jesus Christ actually overcomes death by dying. You know, again, sometimes you're just at a loss of words for how He has done this thing. Really, you know, kind of what I've learned to do is as just my theologian side of myself is in trying to understand all this stuff, is to say, you know, at the end of the day, I'm never going to be able to fully understand what all He accomplished. But that doesn't cheapen it. What it ought to bring me to is to my knees in worship. In other words, when you don't understand something, it's not cheapening of it. It's the fact that this is bigger than you are. This is bigger than we are. He did some stuff that we can't even put in our little brains. The ones that He gave us, you know. It's always funny to me when someone says things like, you know, they don't believe in God uh, because of, you know, logic or because of science. You know, He's the one who created science. He's the one who created your brain and your not believing is, you know, available because of Him. Uh, but no one, no one really seems to care. And, you know... This is a big question. Why did God become man? Why did He have to do that? You know, again, why could He not just have waved His wand? Why can, why can salvation not just be transactional, like going to the bank? Like doing something legal. We signed some papers, He signed some papers, we're good to go. And many people actually 
sadly, in the church and in Christianity, have looked at salvation as transaction. God does something, and I do my part, and then that's the way it works. You know, it's it's more of a signing this and signing that. You know, I said a prayer, he did this, and now we're done. It's over. The papers are signed. You can go check them at the courthouse. You know, they're in the books of heaven. But this is not the way the Bible envisions our relationship to God. It's not the way that the Bible envisions uh, how salvation actually happens. If we think it's just an external transaction, then we are not seeing the mediator who mediates this transaction, this covenant. I mean, it is a covenant, after all. He institutes, as we just said last week in the Lord's Supper, a new covenant by His blood. So, it is sealed in blood, it is a covenant, and yet it's the covenant maker who is important. So, you know, after, you, know you buy a house and you sign all these documents, but then you're not going to see that person again, more than likely. It's just going, hey, how's it going? Okay, yeah, you know, see ya. And that's it. Not with salvation. Salvation may have a real transactional part to it that happens in heaven that we're really not privy to. But the saving part of salvation is Jesus. It's the mediator Himself. He is the one who matters. He is the center and in Him, the Scripture says, all things hold together. All things. As John describes here, He is the light that lights everyone that is coming into the world. Now, you know, in Greek, when you translate everyone, it comes out everyone. So, when He says He lights everyone, I can't help but assume somehow He lights everybody. Yes, that's the tribal member. Yes, that's the person in India who's immersed in Hinduism or in China. I don't know how that works. We're not told. I'm just told here that He lights everyone. And what you do with that light, I imagine, really matters. You know, it's always this question that goes around, especially uh, college-aged folks or people who are struggling in their faith. You know, you have four or five, I can normally say it before they say it, questions that people always bring up as objections to the Christian faith. One of them being, Well, if Jesus is the only way, what happens to people on the other side of the world who never hear His name, who never have a Bible, who never uh, get an opportunity to respond to Jesus? They never hear about it. And this is a problem. And it is a real problem. We shouldn't just cast it aside. It's It's a deep issue. It's something that ought to push us missionally out into the world, out into places like India, where it's 1 or 2% Christian into places like China to reform and to help those Christian brothers and be witnesses. And so it is a real problem. What do we do with that? Uh, and I don't always have the answer for that. Um, but my typical default answer is this. We're worried about them. What about us? What about us who are fully immersed in the things of God? We all have a Bible. We can buy them for $5. Less than we can eat at McDonald's. We have all kinds of tools for Bible study for free online. Commentaries galore. We have leisure enough to read. We're not worried about where we're going to sleep tonight. 
what we're going to eat and how we're going to do that next. Sifting through garbage. That's not our life. So what about us? Yeah, you're worried about them. What about us? Is the onus not on us? To whom much has been given, much is required. That's a scary saying. It's something that is always in the back of my own mind. Who's been given much in life? I've been given the Gospel very clearly in my life. So I better be living it out very clearly. Why did God become man? We know it's for salvation purposes. And many theories have been proposed about you know, what the atonement does for us, what He's done you know, in saving us, and not any one of them captures the whole thing. That's how big this is. You know, if you were to ask me, I, I know Jessica very well. I can oftentimes have a conversation with her without her. Uh, what I mean by that is, is I will ask a question and I will respond myself in her place to that question and it will be exactly what she would have said. And she would even agree with this. Uh, we ought to really record that sometime because I know, no, I, know, I know no one believes it, but I can verbatim. Even the language she uses, I can get that. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty, I guess it comes with, with 10 years of knowing somebody or 11 years. But um, with Jessica, if you were to ask me, you know, who is Jessica? I, I really wouldn't know how to answer that. I could tell you a bunch of different things. She's loving, she's kind, she's compassionate, she worries about what other people think. Um, she really loves her kids. She's dedicated to her family. But you keep saying, well, yeah, no, I, yeah, those are things that she does and those are things that describe her, but who is she? It's a really tough question. You need to talk about somebody that you know very well, but you know, distilling that down into a couple words is really tough. And so when we ask the question, you know, why did God become man? Don't expect just some easy answer. It's a really difficult thing we're talking about here. As you've noticed in Advent, we've kind of gotten pretty heavily theological here. And I, and I really, I try to, you know, in a Sunday service, this is not the best place to introduce just, you know, hard theology, deep theology. But at the same time, how can we negate it? How can we not talk deep and hard and difficult about what He's done? Because what He's done is deep. Amen. What He's done is wide. What He's done is for us. It matters. It matters more than biology. It matters more than chemistry. Look at the words in chemistry. Look at the words in biology. Look at the words in the engineering programs. Look at all the little acronyms and whatnot you give to things. You have to memorize all that stuff. You have to understand it. There's a process. And so there is with Jesus. This is not just uh, as simple as coming down to an altar and saying a prayer and being done with it. Bada bing, bada boom. No, this is a relationship of love. Jessica and I sometimes struggle to understand each other. You're going to struggle to understand God. Why would we not? This is not some simple faith of simple people. No, some of the highest thoughts ever thought in life come from the church. From the very one who created thinking. He is, the Scripture says, the center, the unity of all things. And He does this because He becomes a human. He becomes a man in the first century. So you say, well, yeah, but how does that... I mean, there's a lot of people who 
are men. There's a lot of people who, have, who are human. What makes him so different? It's because he becomes the second Adam. So in Adam, Paul says, all died. This is what he says in Romans. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians. In Adam, all have died. So in a real way, all of us were in Adam. He was the beginning of all things. I mean, all of us are related to Adam, in other words. Nobody's not. So that's the one thing we have all in common. Well, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Now, we're not culpable for his sin, but we are for our own, and we've all followed in our Father's footsteps. This is what the Scripture says very clearly about Adam, very clearly about original sin, the fall. And again, as we've said before, we fall far. It's not some you know, five-foot drop. It's from the Empire State Building. We're messed up. We're twisted. We're mangled. We need some serious help. So how does that help come? It's not with a shovel scraping us off the ground. It's not a construction worker. Instead, He becomes one of us. He gets in the mess itself, in our distortions their self, and He does it right. So He relives what we should have done in the beginning in His own very life, and that also saves us. So yes, He's the example for us. But also, in that very example, that also is saving. Everything He does is saving from His preaching to His baptism to being filled, you know, the Spirit coming upon Him. All these things are meant for us. We too are supposed to participate in this. And so Paul will ask this question in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 13. He says, Is Christ divided? Because, quite frankly, a lot of times it seems that Christ is divided in our world. This again is another argument against Christianity, which is if God is one, then how is He three? That's just bad math, right? Well, and again, you know, cheap answers aren't going to cut it. Three persons, one God, one God in three persons. His being is in communion. There's only one God. But this one God is a dynamic relationship which is why relationships matter. This one God is a divine family, Father, Son, Spirit, which is why family matters. It's why in the Bible, unity matters. Is because God Himself is a unity. You say, well, well what does this really mean then? I mean, why, why all this, you know, why, why, why this high kind of thinking? Why, why would John introduce the, even these, these kinds of things? That doesn't really help me in my normal day-to-day life. Well, here's the way it uh, affects you. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Is we've all been called to union with God. We are designed to be one with God. And here's the reason why. is because in His coming, He becomes one with us. So to reject... Union with God is to reject Jesus. And to reject Jesus is to be separate yourself from God. Now, it's very simple. When you are one with eternal life, you have eternal life. When you separate yourself from eternal life, you do not have eternal life. Remember, we made the distinction last week between our physical life, bios, 
and that spiritual life, Zoe, as C.S. Lewis puts in his book, Mere Christianity. What the Bible calls spiritual life is eternal life. And not everybody has eternal life. That is God's life, not our own. Notice what he says here in verse 13. Who were, they became children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Now, born of blood, what does he mean? He means this is not something you inherit. In other words, just because my dad was a pastor doesn't mean that I'm going to be Christian. Doesn't mean that I'm going to love Jesus. Doesn't mean I'm going to be one with God. So you're not born into this thing. E. Stanley Jones said this uh, in one of his books. He was a missionary to India uh, many years. He says, God has no grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters. So if you're going to be a son of God, a daughter of God, you, not your parents, not your heritage, must believe in Jesus. You must put Christ in you. must put Him center. Um, He says then, nor the will of the flesh. In other words, you can't do it on your own. It's not something you just decide to do. This is the will of God, not your will. I don't decide just to save myself. I can't. I have to trust Him because it's His work, not mine. And also, nor of the will of man. Nobody can do it for me. Trust me, as, as a pastor, I would love to just do some things for people, you know. Or stop doing some things for people, you know what I mean? Like I see some things that are destroying people's lives and I, and I just wish that, that I could just make them do something. Stop doing that! Why can't you see this? And this is not the way that the Gospel works. This is not the way even God Himself works, is it? He doesn't come and make us do things. It's not His mode of operation. He's already done it. You know, we, we oftentimes in our praying and stuff say, Lord, we, we hope that You will do this and we hope that You will come and be here with us this morning. So, you know, and, and, and I understand what we mean by that kind of praying. I even pray that way. But at the same time, He's already done it. It's already done deal. He's done everything necessary for us to be one with Him. So the question is, why are we not? It's because of us, not Him. This is on us, not Him. And we can bring every objection in the book. We can bring every question that we have in the book and complain and whine and moan and it's not helping us become one with Him at all. We must get about the business of becoming one with God. It's what we were created for. And until we are one with Him, we'll never be joyous. We'll never be happy. We'll never be holy. We'll never find our purpose in life until we are united with God. We were made for Him. to fit. He, well, let's put it this way. He made us for Himself. And until we are one with Him, then we're not ourself. You ever done something crazy? Just dumb and stupid like me? And then you say to yourself, why did I do that? Like, what was I even thinking? Or was I thinking? And you say sometimes, you know, you hear the excuse from people, you, you hear them say, you know, I just wasn't myself. Yeah, it's, it's true. Some people are not their true self because they're not in Christ. 
We look sometimes and say, man, what, what vicious beasts those people are. Animals over there. You know, part of Isis or whatever. They just, they just seem like beasts, you know. Wild animal. Yeah. To be human is to be like Christ. He is the human par excellence. He's what it means to be human. And we as His sons and daughters are to be like Him. How do we be like God? Be in union with Him. Be one with Him. It's the only way. You know, uh, we had a bonfire the other night, and this always just, you know, people stare at fire, if you notice. You know, it was just, you crank the fire up, and people just. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, just sitting staring at the fire. I mean, it's just some, fire draws people. You know, fire is not an element in our world, it's not on the periodic table. There's not one called fire. <laughs> uh, I don't know the periodic table, but I know that. Fire is a process. It's a reaction. It's really a unique thing in our world, actually, which is probably why we look at it. You know, we're like, wow, this is really cool. Like, it's burning stuff up. You know, this is awesome. Um, but if you'll notice in a, in a bonfire, look down where the real source is coming from. And what you'll find is that some of the wood is not burning up. Some of the wood has actually caught the fire and it's gotten inside of the wood and it's not burning it up, but it's glowing. You're, you know, it's an ember, right? You take it out, it can start other fires. Actually, this is the way a lot of forest fires are started in the world is somebody doesn't put out their fire totally. It looks like it's put out, but underneath are these embers that have the fire within them that are not burning up. St. John of the Cross, a theologian way back in the day, said this, that must be us. We must, we're fire that can be burned up, cut up, destroyed, and yet God wants to put His fire. Isn't He an all-consuming fire? He wants to put His fire in us. You say, well, hang on, that's going to, that's going to, Destroy me, right? And yet we, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, can find ourselves in the fire without burning up. And they didn't even smell like smoke, the Bible says, when they came out. That's a great thing because when I had my bonfire, I had to you know, wash my sweatshirt even though I don't wash it often, but because of the smell of the smoke, right? You just, oh man, this is terrible. No, they didn't even smell like smoke. That's the kind of life we are called to live as in the fire of God Himself who is an all-consuming fire. We were made only for Him. Yes, we're fragile. Yes, we're weak. But we were made for Him. And He can strengthen us and put His fire within us and we can glow for Him. We can be light. Doesn't he, I mean, It's the craziest thing in the world, but he, you know, here's John is saying, Jesus is the light that lights everybody. And then later on, what does Jesus say? You are the light of the world. Now the only way we can have that light is, is because of Him, because He is the light. We're not the source of the light. We're more like the moon you know, that reflects the sun. We're not the sun. We'll never be the sun. But we can be sons and daughters of the sun and reflect God in His world. This is what we're called to do. This is the kind of union and communion that He has actually called us to. Uh, so, you know, in this, in this season where we see both death of our grass and our trees, what seems to be death at least, dormancy, 
and then where we see these green uh, examples of His life. I want you to think about your own life. You're all around death and destruction and maybe evil and bad things, but can't we too be that green branch among the dead? Can't we too be the light in the darkness? This is what He's called us to. The only way is union with God. To be one with God. You know, uh, another question you, you often get in both a college setting, but also just in church life in general. Even from, even from older people, you know, I just don't know about this decision, what I should do or what I shouldn't do. What is God's will in this decision? What is God's will for my life? These are questions that come up. You know, people, people are really interested. You know what God's primary will for everybody's life is? I mean, this is just across the board. It's Him. Amen. It's Jesus. You must know God. Amen. You know, I can say that until I'm blue in the face, but you must experience God yourself. Himself. He is the prize. He is the heavenly reward. Amen. He is the gift that came down from heaven. He is the reason for this season. He's the reason for your life. You know, sometimes we'll go hours thinking about our job, thinking about this, worrying about that. What if, what if we just take some of that time? Just tithe. Do 10% of your time to God. Within the hour, give Him, you know, six minutes of the 60 minutes. Right up at the front. Just pray. Think about God. I mean, it's, you know, God is... You can talk to God without having to actually physically talk, verbally be voiced. You can be driving down the road. You can be with company. You can be in a bad situation. You know, come in, shut the door, sit down. And I start praying immediately. What do you do? Start worrying in your head? What good does that do? You see, we mismanage our time, we mismanage our life. It must be centered on Jesus. You must know God. Don't spend this week, don't spend this next hour or this next day without Jesus Christ. He has come for us. He's done everything possible. It's now our turn to respond to Him. All of life is a response to Him. We are to be one with God. He's one, and He calls us into His oneness. Now that oneness is very dynamic, isn't it? Just like the Holy Trinity is dynamic. Yeah, that doesn't mean we're all going to look the same, dress the same, like the same stuff. That's uniformity. No, no, no. He calls us to be one with Him. Never getting rid of ourselves. He likes you. He created you like you are. Now we've botched things up. We've done some things to tangle ourselves up, but here's the good news. He can deliver us. He can untangle us. He can correct us. He can adjust us. He can sew us back up. He can make us right. That is the gospel of the kingdom. And it's a powerful that the world needs to hear. And so in conclusion, John, it says, is a witness to Jesus. 
So are we. So are we. So God help us to witness. The greatest witness you'll ever have is your testimony in life. It takes years to build, moments to lose. So be careful. The decisions you make week to week matter. They matter for your kids. They matter for our church. You'll read the Old Testament and see that what one person does affects everybody. It's like we're back in elementary school. Right? Who stole this? Nobody's speaking? Okay, everybody gets punished. Well, in the same way, you affect everybody else around you. We're still living the Old Testament truth that what you do affects everybody else. By the way, that's how gravity works too, you know. When we do something here, when I raise my arm like that, it affects the moon. It goes all throughout the entire universe. One ripple. That's it. You know, the placid ocean or placid uh, lake, you throw something in, the ripple goes a long way. So does our work. So does our life. We need to be careful. What about us? What about us? What are we doing with Jesus when we are flooded with His grace? When we've got access to all kinds of resources, when we have all kinds of abilities, what about us? We can worry about other people. That's great and grand. But what about you? Are you actually doing your part? Are you being the witness that He's called you to be? What are you doing with His gifts that He's given to you? They're not your own. They're His abilities. It's His time. Not your own. It's His kids. It's His church. These are some tough things. These are some tough truths, but this is what He's called us to, is to be one with Him. He's called us to Himself, and that's most important. You know, these, these uh, students, I ask me all the time, you know, what if I do this? What if I do that? Which one of these paths? Jesus is the path. Everything else is secondary. <coughs> Everything else can be changed and messed with, and you, know, you can make it fine. You know. Working as a clerk, to a lawyer, to whatever. President of the United States. It doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus. Your relationship with Him. That's the biggest decision of all of your life. What are you going to do with Jesus? It's the thing that will determine your eternal destination. So we want to be right on that. Uh, we can do that today. Today, the Scripture says, is the day of salvation. Today is the day where His grace is available for us. All because He became one of us. Amen.